Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome back to the Lizard Wellbeing Show, your weekly dose of wellness wisdom that you can trust in podcast form. And we have been loving reading your feedback about some of our recent episodes, like this one from Fab122, great name by the way, about our interview with the intuitive movement coach, Tally Rye. And Fab122 writes to say, yet another fascinating episode. Thank you, Liz. This is just what we all need to hear. Really encouraging and inspiring. What a lovely lady Tally is. She certainly is. And congratulations, Tally, because anyone who follows her will know that she recently got engaged. Ta-da! Yeah, it's a great episode, actually. Intuitive movement for all ages and body shapes, if you haven't yet listened to that one. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. If you would like to get in touch, you can find me on social media at Lizelle Me or the team and me at Lizelle Wellbeing. And the team and I are waiting to read your messages. And if they're podcast related, I will read them out here. On today's episode, it is about a topic that impacts an incredible 10% of the world's population. And that's regardless of age, sex, race or background, causing pain, discomfort and embarrassment to those affected. And yet it's not fully understood what causes it and diagnosis can be difficult. And all too often it's either forgotten about, not discussed or worse, is seen as being a bit taboo. Well, I'm talking about IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. You may even suffer from this yourself or know somebody who is at the moment. But what's it like to live with it and how best can we manage it? Well, some of these answers could lie in a new book, Managing IBS, from Dr Lisa Das, one of the leading gastroenterologists in the UK. And Dr Das is with me now. Hello and welcome. Hello, Liz. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's a great pleasure because I have a very vocal community here at Lizard Wellbeing, especially on social media. And IBS is a topic that comes up time and time and time again. So I'm delighted that we can do a deep dive. So before we get into the nitty gritty, can you tell us a little bit about your background as a medic here? Yes, so I'm a gastroenterologist. I had spent 11 years in the NHS at the Royal London and Barts, just until just before COVID, actually. So now I'm fully private. And 
I really remember medicine has always been my passion and I knew from the age of four I wanted to study medicine. I remember going to visit my father who was then a junior doctor at Lewisham Hospital and so I've never had a different job. I've always been a doctor and, you know, I still enjoy it and, and love the gastroenterology. I trained at Guy's Hospital in London and then I got this fantastic opportunity to travel to the States for postgraduate training in Boston for medicine and then at Columbia University for my gastroenterology and that completely changed my life. I mean, I'm not going to mention which year that was, but um, <laughs> at those times, gastroenterology for us, looking in a camera was looking down this deep, dark pinhole camera and you couldn't see anything and you'd have to pretend to be enthusiastic about the ulcer you'd seen. But in Boston, I, I arrived there and it's all on a big video screen. You can see everything and discuss it with everyone. And really, that's been the advent of gastroenterology because, you know, endoscopically, we can do so much, remove polyps and you know, burn and treat things. So really, it, it really was the right specialty to go into. I stayed in the States about 15 years and then just suddenly one day I got homesick for London because I was born and raised here. Decided to come home with my two daughters and I started back over in the NHS. So here I am. Amazing. Well, I love it that you love it so much. You can tell that your enthusiasm is really infectious. And I'm just so intrigued. All the time I talk to medics, so often there seems to be a familial thread. They'll often say, you know, a cardiologist will say, you know, my father was a cardiologist or my, you know, a GP. My father and grandfathers were both GPs. I wonder why that is. I mean, is that a genetic thing or is that the fact that you grow up with it all around you? It imbues in you and you get inspired? I think you do have an inspiration. And, you know, as growing up, you, you see your parents and I think you do subconsciously want to emulate them. Mm. So my dad uh, was a GP. My mum was a computer science teacher. So in that age, she was quite advanced for her age. Gosh. And I'm actually quite proud. My two daughters are now studying medicine. Um, mm. their own choice and um, you know we'll see how they go yeah continuing it now I don't often do this but I do want to talk about who your book is dedicated to because right at the start you say thank you to mum and dad because quote you instilled the magical pleasure of active listening which I realize now is also an act of love and to those who have spoken endlessly to brick walls and barriers, don't simply be heard, choose to be understood. I love that. Active listening. What is that? Why have you put that in there? And do you have people who come to you saying that they haven't been heard? I think that's the reason I put this is because so many patients will come in and, you know, they're close to tears. They say they've seen three or four other doctors and just nobody has listened and you know this is the the frustrating thing about IBS because you know we're all trained in a similar fashion but you have to be interested I think especially for IBS type patients and now nowadays in the last three four years active listening is now a buzzword and it's a communication skill but when I was growing up it wasn't it was a natural trait it's something you did with friends and family you studied each other you read body language and it was a normal way to interact mm. So, you know, listening is conscious and I think that's the difference. And I think you know it when you go into a into a doctor or a healthcare professional and you need to have that interaction, you need to bond with that with that provider. And so I think it's interesting. There are three A's to the active listening. The first one is attitude. And I think being welcoming and open minded and 
show that you're interested in that person, the person who's come in to seek advice from you. And I know that not everyone has a positive attitude to patients and I'm not, you know, putting other people down, but there are certain specialties that perhaps are less interactive listening. And I just thought I'd share with you, I had, I was a consultant and I had sought some dermatology advice at an NHS clinic and the consultant was actually an older male who was a professor. So you think, right, top of the game. But from the moment I came into the room, he wasn't interested in me. He just wanted to get his notes done and have me leave the room. So he asked me a few rudimentary questions. He did examine me, but he didn't listen. So he'd already made up his mind and he gave me a diagnosis of eczema. And I mean, with all due respect, I, you know, I did not have eczema. So I knew that I wasn't going to be coming back. I think he understood it too, but he just wasn't bothered. And I think happily nowadays, more and more colleagues, they are interested and they want to engage with patients. And so the second day is actually attention. So in my mind, this is about being present, being present for the person who is in front of you, not on your computer or phone. Although I know our GP colleagues actually have only 10 minutes to see a patient and they're, you know, they are quite rushed. There's not a lot that they can do. But if you give due diligence to your patients and you watch their gestures and their body language, you will get more out of that consultation. And, you know, the history is something that from day one in medical school, we're taught this is the most important aspect of medicine. And it really is because you have to gain that story. And then lastly, the third A is adjustment. So this is ourselves. This is how we respond to the conversation. So, you know, if I make a face or I look bored or I've turned away, <laughs> that person is not going to, you know, unfold with her, her story, his or yes. her story. And so I think we've got to judge ourselves on all of those three A's. And, and that really is the active part of listening. Oh, I love that. Honestly, I think that's so, so refreshing to hear and and interesting to hear, you know, from a fellow doctor who actually goes for a consultation that can not get a great result. It just shows that it's it is across the board, isn't it? And, and you know, even if you go in fully prepared, sometimes it's perhaps not the right person who is going to give you some active listening. Yes, it's very true. I, I mean, I wasn't going to go back to the follow up. And actually, I did. And, and what was quite refreshing, there was a junior registrar and she listened to me and she actually made the diagnosis, which mm. wasn't one of eczema, can I tell you? So really? that did restore my faith. <laughs> Good. Oh, well, I'm glad it had a happy outcome. Now, we've just gone through three A's there. And I've actually seen your book described as an A to Z of IBS. So is that why you wrote that book? I mean, did you feel that you needed to have literally an A to Z, that there were so many things to talk about? Um, I mean, how much do we really know about IBS from the very beginning? Well, I was very honoured when Penguin did ask me to write this book and I believed it was important to have a patient A to Z. You know, this mm -hmm. this isn't for other medical professionals, although I think, you know, other people may be interested to read it. We still don't know everything about IBS, but there's been a huge explosion of information since the discovery of the gut microbiome and I know that you've ah. covered this yourself extensively <laughs> yes I love a bit of microbiome chat <laughs> I think I've been telling my daughters about the microbiome for the last six years they're completely bored Fantastic. of listening yeah, to me about it. my family a bit of eye rolling whenever it's talked about here <laughs> yes so the microbiome you know as you know is these trillions of bacteria viruses fungi parasites that live with us and I think what's so fascinating is that they play a fundamental role in our overall health, our mental state, our disease processes, and even 
precancerous changes mm. and so I do I envisage we're not there yet I think there's quite a long way to go but hopefully by manipulating the microbiome going forward we could change our approach to medical conditions for the future so even though we are in the infancy about understanding IBS there are a few factors that have changed with irritable bowel syndrome and what I found when I came back from America, where people are very much general gastroenterologists, when I came back here, it was very much either Crohn's disease related, cancer related, or the other things which included IBS. And perhaps it wasn't taken as seriously at that time. But in the last three years, there's been a huge push looking at the global cost of IBS. Mm. This is a worldwide condition. As you said, it affects, you know, 10 to 11 percent of the population and the cost for England is up to six hundred and thirty billion pounds. Billion huge, with a B. Yes, with a B. Wow. So this is a huge drain of you know resource, and we're actually not treating these people terribly well. And the second thing that came out of it was that the definition changed. So IBS was termed a functional condition. So, in a way, medically, this was thought to be a much lesser, you know, ugly sister of other real conditions such as reflux or peptic ulcer disease but now it's been termed by the Rome Foundation who are the body that designates the definition of irritable bowel syndrome it's now termed a disorder of gut brain interaction and that has given it more kudos mm. so to speak mm. and it's now being taken more seriously I mean I was amazed 10 years ago you'd never see a surgical site talking about IBS it was all about you know bowel operations, stomach operations. And now the surgeons are, are touting themselves as IBS type doctors. So there's, you know, it's become sexy. Oh, excellent. Well, let's get into that. And before we start, do we all just need to get over any embarrassment that we might be feeling listening? Because yes, we are going to be talking about poo. We're going to talk about farting, anything else in between. Uh, as a doctor, I'm assuming that you've seen it and heard it all before. I've definitely, <laughs> definitely seen it and heard it. But you're right, you know, everybody poops. And I think yes. that there are songs about it now. There's Cuckoo Kangaroo who sings a song about everybody poops. And it's, you know, it's to help <laughs> children as well, because it is quite a, it's a difficult, you know, toilet training is a difficult thing to get through mm. for both parents and children. Mm -hmm. So the fact that, you know, there are books about all animals do it and we do it and it's the same thing is, is really important. And my chapter in the book tries to describe the kind of normal side of poo, whether you call it stool or feces. But it does take quite a while to engage someone to speak out about their bowel habits, mm -hmm. believe it or not. And I've definitely seen over the last 10 years that more and more patients will come in and they know what the Bristol stool chart is and they'll come in and they'll they'll refer to it. Excellent. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. I am, yes, but let's talk about it. So for those who don't know, the Bristol stool chart, possibly not a chart that you might want to pin up on your wall, but good to have to refer to. <laughs> yes, so this was first, you know, formulated by the Bristol Royal Infirmary. And this is in 1997. It's now available worldwide in, I think, 14 different languages. And it describes seven different types of stool. So without being too graphic, type one is the kind of hard pellet type droppings, 
bit like rabbit droppings, uh, which is deemed constipation. And the other type of the spectrum is type 7, which are sloppy liquid stools, which are entirely diarrheal. Mm -hmm. um, so 3 to 4 is in the middle. Those are described as sausage-shaped, smooth stools. <laughs> and people will come in with a Bristol stool chart. You really? can get mugs made with it and cakes made with it nowadays. So, so people are definitely far more familiar. Oh, my goodness. And should we then be aiming for somewhere in the middle? I mean, is that if we examine our poo is that sort of what we should be looking for to know that we're our, our bowels are functioning properly as they should i think it's yes it is a good guide and one of the questions that people ask is well you know how many times should i normally go to the toilet so you know this is quite a wide variation so it's a rule of threes so three times a day to up to three times per week is the normal stool frequency you know but there's form there's the consistency of it there's whether it feels completely evacuated there's whether you need to use your fingers to complete the evacuation you know there's several parts mm -hmm. of having a bowel movement that need to be considered other than just the form so the rule of three just to be clear so three times a day up to three times a week does that mean three poos a day three times a week or up to no so one end of the spectrum is three poos a day is normal right. but it could be one poo a day and you'd still be fine you'd be still be fine. And mm -hmm. that's all the way through to one every other day, every two days, right. so that you're having three evacuations a week. Okay, got you, got you. Well, that's very helpful as a rule of thumb. And I think one of the things that I love about this book, not only does it give you so much practical information here, but it's very evidence-based. The advice is great and it feels very accessible because it's not too medical, is it? No, I've tried to concentrate on that because the minute you start using medical jargon, you lose your patients and then you won't know what to talk about. Mm. And I think some of the terms that we use, even in different languages, you know, the Chinese language doesn't really have a word for abdominal discomfort. And that's one of the defining characteristics of irritable mm. bowel syndrome. Because as you know, this is a conglomeration of symptoms it's not a disease process it is a syndrome and it consists of essentially abdominal discomfort which is related in part to some change in the bowels whether that's a softening a hardening a reduction in frequency mm -hmm. associated with you know wind gas or blood but that is the general definition of irritable bowel syndrome so I think keeping the language pretty basic helps us communicate properly. Mm. Well, talking about pretty basic, and you mentioned the word gas there, should we be farting? Is farting part of life, breaking wind? Is it something that we should be conscious of not doing? And is that a, a symbol or a symptom of something else? Or is it just a completely normal activity, bodily function, like blowing your nose or whatever, that is something that we shouldn't fear or be concerned about? Well, as you know, you know, it is um, a mortifying, normal part of life. It is normal, um, though, is it? It is normal. Are it we is meant normal, to fart? Yes. We are meant to fart. Okay. You know, the wind, the gas that is produced, sometimes is absorbed, you know, within the lining of the bowel. But a lot of the times, you know, this gas is produced by our microbiota, is produced by the bacteria working on, our, on the fibre we've eaten. And that does need to come out. And whether we burp it or we pass it the other way, i.e. fart, you know, it's got to come out in some way, shape or form. Mm. I think when people really get troubled is when it's really quite stinky, perhaps, you know, malodorous. 
that's when they notice it more because if you can pass the wind and nobody else in the room really notices it, it doesn't strike you as a as a factor. But it is absolutely normal. And if you have, sorry, this is getting really graphic now. If <laughs> if you have stinky farts, then is that a yeah. sign that your microbiota are troubled and they're not managing to process what's going on inside as efficiently, perhaps as if you pass something that doesn't have that awful smell? Definitely does, yes. Yeah. So oftentimes people, you know, have these stinky farts because actually they're not clearing their bowel as well. Mm-hmm. So they've got old stool that's been sitting there for quite a while. And obviously the bacteria are having a heyday with this and producing more more hydrogen and, and methane, which is the, you know, the smelly part of it. And that has to come out. Mm, okay, so worth judging or you know assessing other members of your family, perhaps would that be an in, a good indication of their state of their digestive health? I'm thinking about kids who might be around or partners. Definitely, I, you know, I've seen lots of patients who you know they don't notice themselves, but their partners might say, "Well, actually, you know, this is quite socially embarrassing now," and then that would prompt them to come in and actually seek some advice. Interesting. Um, it doesn't mean there's anything really badly wrong, but um, oftentimes it's that social embarrassment that prompts somebody to come in. Yeah. So, in layman's terms, then, what is IBS? And in order to understand it, do we need to know how our digestive system works, perhaps? So. IBS is that conglomeration of abdominal discomfort associated with some change in the bowel habits. And that could be, you know, constipation or diarrhea. There's two different types. There's a mixed type, which has constipation and diarrhea. And there's one that's unclassified also. But in the original manifestations of IBS, Manning, who described it first, he had noted bloating. So in our current definition, we don't include bloating, but up to 60% of people actually do have abdominal bloating. And the other thing is that their sense of complete evacuation is reduced. So Mm -hmm. instead of just being fully satisfied with having a bowel movement once or twice a day, this keeps on in their mind and they need to visit the toilet several times. So it is this discomfort related to some abnormality in the bowel habits, which is irritable bowel syndrome. Mm. And how does that differ then from IBD, irritable bowel disease? So that's a very, very good question. So IBD is actually inflammatory bowel disease. It is very different to IBS, and this is the two entities that people have also heard of quite commonly. It is a disease process. It's where there's active inflammation affecting a part of the digestive tract. In Crohn's disease, it affects anywhere from the mouth to the anus. So you could have mouth ulcerations, you could have reflux-type symptoms because of Crohn's disease. It tends to affect the small intestine and then the large intestine. And ulcerative colitis only affects the large intestine, but it's also inflammatory. Now, Mm. these are chronic autoimmune conditions, and they could present with the same symptoms, but they need a definite, specific treatment plan with medications. And that could be from steroids to anti-inflammatories to uh, what we call now these biologics, which, um, which are injectables, which help dampen down the inflammatory response. Mm, Interesting. So IBS then, that can flare up at any time? Is it something that once you've got it, you it's a constant or does it kind of come and go? Does it ebb and flow? Well, the natural nature of IBS is to wax and wane, definitely. And it may just be very mild. I, You know, we tend to see moderately affected IBS type patients. There's several, several people who are living with IBS. They've probably not had a diagnosis. 
they just manage it by taking whether that's peppermint tea you know or some gaviscon something to help the bowels and they're managing it they're living with ibs so it doesn't have to be severely problematic in everybody mm. we tend to see the ones who actually need you know more medical therapies and do we know what causes it and if not then why not when it affects so many of us well, unfortunately, no, we don't. We don't know what causes it. But, again, through the microbiota research, we do know it is a disorder of the function of the gut. And so that could affect the motility, that is, you know, the speed at which food travels down the digestive tract. It's associated with an abnormal sensitivity. So people with IBS have what we call visceral hypersensitivity, which means that their pain sensors are triggered at a much lower threshold than somebody who doesn't have IBS. Um, and it's also related to the hormones and the immunology of the gut, which are disordered. That's why it was termed a functional disorder, because the function of the gut was abnormal, whereas the structure is not. So if you mm -hmm. if you do an endoscopy or a colonoscopy in an IBS patient, the vast majority of the times this is going to be normal. Interesting. And you've picked up on hormones there. And that's obviously something that I write a lot about with perimenopause and menopause. And I do hear many midlife women say that their IBS has worsened or in some cases started when their hormones change and there's a decline in oestrogen. Is there a connection there with oestrogen and IBS? There definitely is. It's not perhaps a direct connection, but the lack of oestrogen, I think, you know, most women will have experienced that around the time of their period, even there's a change in your bowel habits. But this changes once the period starts. So there's definitely a, a hormonal change. And I think that's down to the sensitivity of the nerves in the gut, because don't forget, the gut is called the second brain because it's got a huge concentration of nerves within the enteric nervous system. So those hormones play a big role in how those nerves are sending signals to the brain and causing either discomfort or an abnormal function in the bowel. Mm. How hard is it then to diagnose? Because could the symptoms here be mistaken maybe for other conditions, maybe a food intolerance or a tummy bug, for example? Most definitely. So if you think about the gut symptoms, you know, there's, there's relatively few. There's pain and heartburn, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation. But all of those are shared by a variety of disorders. You know, celiac disease is very common. It's one in 100 people and has absolutely the same symptoms as irritable bowel syndrome. So it needs to be, you know, considered. So IBS is not difficult to diagnose. You know, we have certain criteria about the pain and association with the, the change in the bowel habits. But one has to always be actively listening. They have to think, could this be something else? So we do tend to routinely check every IBS patient for celiac disease with a blood test. Mm -hmm. We sometimes think about thyroid disorders, either over or underactive. So we may do a thyroid test and we would do a stool test really to rule out the IBD we just spoke about, the inflammatory bowel disease, and make sure there's no underlying inflammation. Really interesting. And you talked earlier about how many of us manage our symptoms, maybe with a bit of Gaviscon or some peppermint tea or whatever. At what point then might it be the time to go and see your doctor if you think that you might have IBS? When should we be asking for help? I would say that most people come in when their quality of life is altered. Whether it's they can't socialise anymore, they can't go out for dinner with their friends because of the bloating or the urgency to get to the toilet or if they've become so severely restricted in their diet that they're losing weight and actually making themselves feel 
worse mm. so if you're managing it definitely we you know don't need to be consulted your gp can manage you might have a chat with them but once it's impacted on your daily activity then that really is the time to seek some advice mm. Great stuff. Well, we're going to stop here just for a quick ad break. And when we come back, we will be discussing practical advice for dealing with IBS. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back. And Lisa, so we've been to see the doctor saying that we think we might have IBS. What is likely to happen next? How might we be diagnosed? And can you perhaps reassure us that it's not going to be too scary? <laughs> it's definitely not scary. So, I mean, the, the initial consultation is really important. I harked on about the medical history. So understanding how to take a full history, understanding the clues the patient's trying to tell you. You know, why are they here now? What has triggered them to come in to see you right now and that could be a relationship decline it could be because they can't function at work it could be because they've taken time off work so after taking the history we do a, a, an examination of course just to make sure there isn't anything obviously wrong and then we might do a series of blood tests or stool tests that's the beginning part and that's not scary at all mm -hmm. but I think diagnosing IBS positively if you're sure about that 
then is the way to go with the patients because so many will come in and say they didn't know what they were talking about they thought it was but weren't really sure there are times that you know right this is definitely IBS or this could be but I'm still going to exclude celiac disease and thyroid disease Mm. or inflammatory bowel disease Mm. and I think there's a feeling especially at the moment and particularly perhaps amongst women perhaps a bit more of thinking oh the NHS is so busy I won't bother them but as doctors you're waiting to see us is that right I mean how important is it to get checked out and and what happens if we leave it untreated well we're here ready and waiting for people to come back I think it's been very traumatic you know the whole sense of Covid and people being delayed in their diagnosis Mm. because IBS is very common it's one in 10 of us celiac disease is common it's one in a hundred of us and bowel cancer is actually relatively common it's the third biggest cancer in this country so if you're concerned you must seek advice and this could be IBS and if it's left untreated well fine there's no downside because IBS does not increase your chance of developing Crohn's or colitis it does not Mm. increase your chance of developing cancer so that's the reassuring part of IBS But IBS can coexist with other conditions. So it's important to come in and get some advice and do the appropriate tests. Mm. So then how might we control IBS? You know, I've seen people very quickly turn to restrictive diets, cutting out certain foods, food groups. But is that always the way to go? Well, my answer is a resounding no. Um, Unfortunately, as you know, the food industry has really jumped on this restrictive diet bandwagon. Oh, tell me. (laughs) You are talking my language. (laughs) It's really, you know, the Mm -hmm. gluten-free diet fad has, you know, just exploded. Ridiculous. Yeah. Such a money-making opportunity, I have to say, for so many. It's quite shocking. But so sad because this is not about a medically directed treatment now. This is about financial gain Mm -hmm. and actually you know the gluten-free diet for celiac patients is absolutely mandatory you absolutely must stick to this but up to 25 percent of patient people buying gluten-free products are not celiac in fact probably a greater percentage than that and unfortunately they're touting this gluten-free diet as healthier better for you but actually that's not the case and these are misleading statements Mm. um, because you know these gluten-free foods tend to be higher in sugar higher in calories and definitely higher in price Um, so I think you know people need to be wise and and sticking to real food is actually probably my biggest message you know if you can eat it and your gut is working then Mm. that's the best way to get the nutrition well something that I wrote about actually I I wrote a book called the good gut guide about six seven years ago now maybe but you know right at the beginning of the exploration of of the gut and the gut brain connection and one of the things that I feel very passionately about is that if you do have a disrupted gut IBS or any kind of you know bloating or symptoms rather than just cutting everything out of your diet lactose gluten you know whatever it is actually look at why you have those symptoms and fix that with perhaps better gut health or other strategies rather than just you know saying well I'm just going to cut out these really important food groups for me I don't know whether you'd agree but it's a bit like repeatedly bashing your thumb with a hammer and then putting a plaster on it to make it better well actually you just need to stop bashing your thumb with the hammer (laughs) That's going to be better in the long run. 
I completely agree with you, Liz. I, I, you know, I spend all of my consultations saying I'm going to get you back to as normal a diet as possible, but we're going to do it gradually. So, yes, I absolutely agree with you. So can it be helped or even potentially controlled by diet alone? Are there food choices that we can make or is it also lifestyle? Is it psychological? What are the factors that go on here? Well, as you know, you know, there's so many factors in life that affect our gut. Our mental state does. You know, if you're anxious or worried about an exam, you're more likely to have diarrhea and need to run to the bathroom. Mm. And the diet does play a big role. And I think that unfortunately, many of us were brought up with the advent of processed foods and, you know, buying things in boxes and eating them was the way to to kind of live your life. And luckily, we've cycled back. You know, people are eating fresher, greener, healthier nowadays. But understanding that your diet, we've just got to come back to basics. Eating this rainbow diet of Mediterranean food, which doesn't have additives, that's freshly cooked, is really important. Mm. But also the way we eat. You know, you buy a Greg's, you eat it on the run in the tube. It's just not the right way to to have that full nutritional Mm. experience. Mm. So, as you know, the Mediterranean diet is not only about, you know, fish and fish oils and lots of vegetables. It's also about sitting down and taking time to eat because our brain and our gut is intricately, you know, associated. The the two, there's a massive superhighway with messages flying backwards and forwards and enjoying your meals taking time to enjoy your meals plays a big role also so so interesting and of course a big factor of the mediterranean diet is extra virgin olive oil and that's been shown to have a huge impact i think in in beneficial gut activity are you a fan of olive oil definitely definitely it also helps constipation um you need to have these good fats as well as you know Eggs. Do you remember when eggs were a taboo? You couldn't have more oh. than one egg a day, but actually such a good source of protein. Oh, I and love actually, eggs. you know, not negative. Yeah, no, I love mean, I'm, I'm I'm a two egg a girl day. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I think they're a fantastic form of complete protein and convenience food. You know, have some hard boiled eggs in the fridge and just grab one when you you know, you need to grab something on the run. Not of course that we should, because of course we should be sitting down to eat, but you know, it can't always can't always be done, can it? <laughs> I would highly recommend not eating one that was a week old because I did that and then I went off eggs for quite a long time. <laughs> yes, aversion therapy. That, that, that would do it. Yes, yeah, that was. <laughs> and what about things like kefir and live yogurt? My community here know that I'm described as, as sometimes the kefir queen. I'm never knowingly under kefir. I, I, I do love a bit of that. What's your view? Definitely, definitely. So I think the things we know, I mean, I I had a kind of list of five do's and one of them was, well, do avoid any processed foods. Mm -hmm. The second one was do add a fermented food into your diet on a daily basis, whether that's kefir or kombucha or sauerkraut or kimchi. One of those fermented foods is is really beneficial for your gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll be happy and then you'll be happy also. So I'm definitely a a, a kefir kombucha girl too. Brilliant. And then going on to medicine, what kind of medical treatments are there and when might we need them? I think we're quite lucky now because in the last 15 years, there have been far more pharmaceutical agents we can use. And I'm not going to talk about them exhaustively because they are in the book, but Mm -hmm. there are gut targeted medications, both for constipation and diarrhea now, which means that these 
medications work only on the gut lining. They don't have the same systemic. That's the whole overall body side effects that a lot of medications from 20 years used to. Interesting. There's also, you know, various laxatives, which, you know, people I don't think should go to Boots and buy laxatives and, and just take them willy-nilly. But under direction, if they're used well, a lot of these over-the-counter medications help the irritable bowel syndrome, especially constipation mm-hmm. predominant. And then lastly, I think knowing about the gut-brain axis and knowing how intricately linked it is to the IBS-type symptoms, we are using very low-dose pain modifiers. Now, at higher dose, these are antidepressants. And I always talk to my patients, I'm very you know, open with that. But the doses that we use are working on the gut, the enteric nervous system. So they're not prescribed for depression or anxiety, but they do help to reduce the gut symptoms, which in turn then helps the anxiety and depression. Because again, that's a two-way street between IBS and those mental problems. So, so interesting. And then presumably sort of non-intervention strategies like meditation and mindfulness and time out that would also improve sleep, for example, these would all have an impact as well. Yes, of course. I, that's a very important point. So these, the complementary therapies, I mean, both hypnotherapy and acupuncture have been studied extensively in IBS and are both are beneficial. In fact, mm-hmm. the American College of Gastroenterology just last year published their IBS guidelines. Another reason that IBS became sexy, I think, again. Mm-hmm. But um, they have strongly suggested that, you know, using these as a, adjunctive therapies, hypnotherapy and, and behavioural therapy, are really useful. And nowadays there are these apps. There's a Zemedy app for kind of CBT that you can do yourself. And there's a gut-related hypnotherapy on another app. Oh, interesting. Well, we'll grab the details and we'll put those in, on the links in the podcast notes because I think a lot of people listening might be very interested to download and to make use of those apps. But even if we don't have IBS, or we don't think we do, are there things that we should all be doing generally to improve our digestive health? Are there any sort of major do's and don'ts? So as I said, I think the do's are get rid of processed foods completely, Mm -hmm. do eat a varied rainbow diet. And I often steer people towards the direction of other, you know, nationalities foods. So, for instance, the the vegetables you get in Tesco's oftentimes are limited to broccoli and, you know, cabbage. But there are many foods that you've never seen before that are in Asian or, you know, European markets. So I definitely try and ask people to be a bit more experimental. Mm. And I do say enjoy moderate quantities of chocolate and red wine. Excellent. Oh, my goodness. This Absolutely, we have to enjoy our podcast food. recording. Moderate amounts of chocolate and wine, dark chocolate, presumably. Dark chocolate, yes. Mm. <laughs> and I think the last thing is, is do become familiar with your own gut mm-hmm. because you know your body the best. If something's off kilter, then that's the time for you to go and seek some medical advice. And if you know it's all ticking over, you know fine then you've probably got nothing to be worried about but I had a couple of don'ts and those are don't waste money on the fad diets or supplements Mm -hmm. if you have a healthy gut you can use foods and the second thing is a lot of us are parents don't restrict your children's activities in their early years because the over sanitation concept I think is really important as far as our own gut health and exposure to different microbes outdoor natural environments is really important for maximizing your microbe as a child Mm, really helpful advice so by that you mean going out playing in the sandpit making mud pies petting animals you know getting your hands a bit grubby definitely definitely Mm. that's such good information where can we find out more lisa 
There is an IBS.org website. There is a functional gut disorder website, which I think is really useful. Um, I can give you that link later on. Mm, excellent. Um, and what about you? And I would recommend uh, reading my book. Absolutely. And are you on social media? I'm not. <laughs> Wise woman. <laughs> but I will. <laughs> I've tried. But it's, not, it's a bit busy right now. Yes. Uh, well, Dr. Lisa Das, I feel that we've learned so much. Thank you for joining me today and just being so generous with all your amazing guidelines. And of course, your book, Managing IBS, is out now. And we wish you all the very best with it. Thank you very much. And that is it for this week's episode. As always, you will find more information, including the links and the details of those apps that Dr. Lisa mentioned over on LizelleWellbeing.com. And there you can also sign up for the free weekly newsletter jam-packed with plenty of tips for living well and promoting better gut health. In fact, if you head over to the website, LizelleWellbeing.com, you'll see on the drop-down menu there is a whole section called gut health jam-packed with ideas research recipes advice articles and more and of course there is also our bi-monthly magazine lizardwellbeing.com which is only available on subscription thank you so much for listening until the next time we chat go well bye-bye the lizard wellbeing planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and this is a Fresh Air production. With thanks to my producers, Ellie Smith, Sarah Moore and Chessie Bent.